This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Disorder Press has just published a remarkable new anthology Hear Us, writing from the inside during the time of COVID featuring poetry, fiction, and essays of those who are incarcerated and their family members all across this country, Hear Us describes how the pandemic and the killing of George Floyd impacted their lives. On this edition of The Literary Life, my guest is Kathy Claridge, a writer herself. She is also the executive director of Exchange for Change. We discuss how she brings writing programs to prisons their impact, and how it all led to the publication of this so very moving and important anthology. Uh, Kathy, it's wonderful having you on The Literary Life this afternoon. We've known each other for many, many, many years, and it's great that in this very difficult time that we're able to connect. So thank you, and thank you for all the work that you do. why don't you talk, why don't we start by talking a little bit about this amazing organization that you started called Exchange for Change. You're its executive director and tell me a little bit about it. Well, first of all, thanks so much for inviting me on. It's, it's an honor. Um, so Exchange for Change is a nonprofit that was started really just about seven years ago. Um, and it was an outgrowth in a very circuitous way of being a journalist for many, many years, um, about half of the nearly 30 years that I reported were based in Haiti. And I was always telling other people's stories. I had an opportunity, oh, back in 2009 um, to do something other than just reporting. And I wanted to use my love and, and experience about Haiti in an underserved setting. And so I approached uh, a local organization, Art Spring, that was doing dance and movement inside the women's prison. And I said, hey, I'd love to teach a writing course for Haitian women in prison. And uh, Leslie Neal, the director at the time said, great, let's see what kind of response you can get. And not enough Haitian women signed up. And so I just started to teach writing for the general population. And Maybe six months or so after I started that, the earthquake in Haiti happened. I returned to Haiti for a couple of years. I came back and walked back into a setting where everything was exactly the same, right? Same uniform, same environment, same people for the most part. And my life had been turned upside down completely from having covered Haiti's earthquake and the disaster. And I thought, I cannot tell the story anymore of what happened in Haiti, but the stories of these women, which are locked behind these walls are not getting out and their lives have meaning and let's have them tell their own stories. And that really was the ultimate genesis for what became Exchange for Change, which was to go into prisons, try and impart better communication skills for the people who were inside, develop their writing, 
and bring the word out to the community so that the community could hear firsthand who it was that was part of their community that was not being heard. You've made incredible inroads to that. Why don't you, why don't you flesh it out a little bit and talk about a couple of, of individual success stories that you've had? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, over the course of seven years, we've reached about 1,500 students um, in a lot of prisons in South Florida. But then when the pandemic hit, we expanded a little bit. Um, there are so many stories, Mitchell, to tell. I, I, you know, I can think of, of one, for example, was a guy who came to my class um, born and raised in Miami. I think he's from Liberty City um, and didn't say very much, um, watched me most of the time and then wrote pieces that were incredibly uh, challenging on race and ethnicity and was constantly provoking me. Um, and we got into some very heavy discussions, but he found his voice. And then after, and he, and he became part of what was eventually a, our student leadership council. So we got people who were really engaged in the program to become mentors for our program. He got transferred. And then all of a sudden the letters started to come about what the program had meant to him and how it had helped him find his voice. And just about six months ago, he got transferred back into the area and he's back in our classes now. And he's an incredible leader because he walks the walk and talks the talk and has found a way to get his voice to the outside that I think would never have happened. It was an angry voice and now it's a much more measured um, voice where he's earned respect from his peers. We're also celebrating from, from your work, the publication of an anthology that has an amazing forward by Edwidge Danticat. And the anthology is called Hear Us, writing from the inside during the time of COVID. And I thought I would read just a little bit from Edwidge's uh, forward. She says, just as we wouldn't be aware of certain heinous crimes resulting from police and vigilante murders, if there were no recordings of them, we cannot turn away from the voices here as they document this moment in time, both in their acceptance and their denial of the virus, their theories about its sources, their lightheartedness and seriousness, their outcry and their pain. Tell me about Hear Us. How did it begin? Why did it begin? Where did it come from? And what do you hope people will get from it? When the pandemic hit, those of us in the free world, right? We went into um, we went into lockdown and we went into social distancing. Um, well, people in prison were already in lockdown. Social distancing is a misnomer. There's no way people who live inside prisons can be socially distant from one another. And so we started to hear stories from all around the country, really, about the impact of what was happening on the inside of prisons. And I maybe like other people, but I don't know for sure myself, you know, I was pretty naive. I thought, oh, this will last, you know, a couple months and let's document in real time as it's happening around the country, what the various correctional institutions and the states are doing, um, as opposed to looking back, right? So we put out a call for submissions to all the organizations that we could think of that were working inside prisons across the country. 
And we had a pretty short deadline because we thought there was going to be this very quick turnaround. Um, and then after two months or so, we realized that a three month turnaround wasn't long enough. So we extended the deadline and we ended up getting somewhere around 200 submissions from 18 different states, really from all over the country. Um, with Edwidge's guidance, we put together an editorial board. We called down from those initial 200 or so to about 125, and we sent them out to our three readers on the editorial board, and we gave them categories like yes, no, or maybe, um, so that we could come up with a, a diversity of, of voices, right? Because our concern was that everybody's just going to be complaining about what it's like inside prison, and that's not enough for a book. Um, what happened with the readers is that of the hundred some that we gave them, we got 12, that they all came back with a yes. And then we got all kinds of variations of a yes, no, maybe, two yeses, one no, two maybes, one yes. So we had to really spend a lot of time going through all the ones that we were you know, had this mixed review. And we ended up getting 58 pieces into the book from 10 different states. Um, the vast majority of them are from incarcerated writers, but we have a couple pieces from family members. We have someone from the corrections department in Arizona and a couple drawings. And when we expanded the call for submissions about COVID, we also expanded it to comment on Black Lives Matter. So there is a whole section in here that responds to what happened um, with the George Floyd murder last summer. Would you read something by one of the pieces that we find in the book? Absolutely. So I'm going to read a piece by a man named Bob R. Williams, who goes by Cowboy. He is based in San Quentin, and his piece is called in memoriam, 2020's COVID-19 losses to the death row community. And I'll just read the first couple paragraphs. It's rather sad and pretty enlightening being on death row. I mean, every day you wake up and you know exactly what your reality is. Regardless if it will happen or not, the cold hard fact, at least for me, is that they are going to kill me one day. They're gonna take me to a funky room, strap me to a bed, stick needles into my arms. Then after opening a viewing curtain so people can watch, they're gonna pump five to seven grams of liquid fire into my body until I am graveyard dead. That cold hard reality, however, gives me something special. Facing it, wrestling with it, coming to terms with it, even accepting it up to a point that is, makes each and every moment, each interaction with another person, everything into something so, so special and a value of the greatest worth. And then something comes along, something we can't really even square up to and fight. I mean, the death penalty, I can fight through the courts, but this new thing from distant shores just showed up like a thief in the night. Man, you can't even see it. Really, really powerful. You have had other anthologies of prison writing, right? You've had two, at least two other anthologies, I believe. So as someone who 
you know, who's got, who is so in tune with how people are expressing themselves in prison and what might be happening there. What is your big takeaway from how COVID has affected the inmate population? So the two anthologies that you're referring to are two anthologies of a literary journal that Exchange for Change put together for our students. So those pieces are really specific pieces that our writers worked on during class and have, um, you know, there, there is a variety. There's, there's poetry and fiction and nonfiction. This has a, a really a central theme. And the thing that's so um, gut-wrenching about it is that we have women in Alaska, we have people on death row in San Quentin, we have people in Utah and Mississippi and Tennessee, right? They're all facing this lack of control over their lives in a way that they never had before. And they write about it with humor and grace and dignity and outrage. And it shows the humanity of who it is that's locked up behind bars in a way I think that has touched the nation. It, if there is any, anything good that can come out of what, what happened to people inside prisons during COVID is that the rest of the world is now more aware of what it is that goes on behind bars. I mean, we talk about um, social distancing. Okay, we can already dismiss social distancing, but when it was first happening, at least in the state of Florida, there is no air conditioning in our prisons here, right? So the air circulation, South Florida in particular, think about that. Each incarcerated person gets a small hotel-sized bar of soap that has to last a week. Right? How can you continue to wash your hands, wash your clothes, and stay safe when you're not given the right supplies? So one of the things that is really important for us is that when people read this, they think about the humanity that's locked away and recognize that when someone is arrested and convicted and sentenced, their punishment is that they are removed from society and they can no longer partake in all the things that the free world has to offer. But that does not mean that their human rights should be taken away. Doesn't mean that the right to healthcare should be removed. Doesn't mean as an education program that the right to education should stop. And these are the kinds of things that we were asking our writers to write about. And we said, give us a piece that will take your breath away. This is not an anthology that should be read from front to back. We want people to pause after each reading and really think about the conditions under which the person wrote the story. And, and certainly during the year of COVID, the one year that this, this, this anthology reflects, there was much more beyond just COVID happening in our society. And I want to read, there's a poem that's in the anthology that's what I would read. It's called, I Can't Breathe. Uh, do you know that one? And the author is Helena L. Payne who's from Florida, and it's in memory of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And she, and she writes, I feel like the world is on my shoulders, hot coals and heavy boulders. The pain is getting stronger. All I can see is my mother and my daughter. I once was young, but now I'm older. The world is getting colder. I'll be home, is what I told her, surrounded by police, black clouds, it seemed to me, spare me the knee. Home is what's free to me. 
please help me. A black child survival is in me. I demand to stand to my feet and be treated like a human being. Don't take my life away from me. Boy, that's powerful, Kathy. Edweed's got it absolutely right. These are voices that we need to hear from. And it's also, as you say, you know, a way of recognizing that we need to make sure that humanity of people who are incarcerated, that that is not forgotten by any of us. And of course, it begs the question now, as we know, we're not done with COVID, right? There's maybe even another wave ahead of us. Uh, what is your take on what's happening uh, in prisons now? You know, Mitchell, it was really hard um, in the beginning when this first happened, right? Because we were going in on a, on a daily basis, right? To different prisons in South Florida. And then March 11th came and everything shut down. And it was very hard for us to get direct information from what was happening inside, although um, people were, you know, ended up talking about it. And we know that there the protocols in the beginning, they, like everybody else, they were still trying to figure it out and they eventually got masks. Um, I think they got two masks over the course of um, six months and you know they still got this single bar of soap. Uh, and then they went into quarantine, but not like our quarantine. So their quarantine back then could have been um, 14 days if they were lucky, but for the most part, it lasted months. And we have students who were in a single dorm for nearly three months, not allowed outside, um, no release to go to chow, for example. They were just brought two sandwiches a day, peanut butter and jelly and bologna sandwiches, bad lunches for them. These are for grown men, right? So other issues were developing because they weren't getting exercise, they weren't getting sun, they're in these non-air-conditioned dormitories. So yes, things are definitely better, right? For sure they're better now. Um, they were able to, not necessarily to get canteen, which is where they got a lot of extra supplies, but they were able to call home, which is also how the public found out about what was happening inside. Uh, and then the quarantine opened up, right? And so people started, they were, they were able to move around the compound again and get fresh air and get better nutrition. Uh, they, our, our governor made it really clear in the beginning that he was not going to reduce the prison population. Other states were much more fortunate in that they did reduce the, the prison population. And then Governor DeSantis also said he was not going to um, offer vaccines inside the state prisons. Unfortunately, he did change his mind on that. And we've got some really very good people in Miami who are working really hard on making sure that the vaccines are offered. So we, I, I personally went back in ironically one year later. So I went back in again on March of 2021 um, into the same prisons that I hadn't been in in a year. And you know, this is the horrible thing about prison. It was pretty much the same, um, same people, same uniforms, same uh, protocol with the compound. Um, but, you know, it had a deep, just like for the rest of us, it had a deep psychological impact. Um, and we lost students, right? So that's a, another part of this that was just really very difficult. Uh, the state of Florida was 
um, always in the top three, I think, for the number of people infected inside our prisons and the number of deaths. Mm -hmm. uh, it is much better now. I, you know, I want to be really clear. We have started up our programming. When I first went in, everybody was wearing masks. Uh, some people have been vaccinated, not all. So uh, people are not wearing masks inside. We as an organization will not allow any of our staff, our teachers to go in if they're not vaccinated because again, I'm sure that people make this connection. The only way people inside prison can get infected is from those of us on the outside bringing it in. Right. So the staff was bringing it in, but it's a really long answer to your question. Yeah, things are definitely better. Well, but you know, what's interesting is that you're not, you're, you're not allowing unvaccinated volunteers to go in, but how about people who work in prisons? Do they have to be vaccinated? Probably not, given DeSantis's stand on what's happening. And so there's actually, no mandate for them to have to be vaccinated. Do they wear masks at least? No. So that's one of the one of the themes that you'll also see in the book is this hypocrisy between trying to. Or, there's a lot of hypocrisies, right? Okay. So in your dorm, you know, you're you're in you're in a six by nine cell. If you're with two people, if you're in an open bay, you're head to foot. You're right next to people. But when they go to the chow line right, to, to line up to go to, to eat, they can only sit two to a table, right? So instead of four to a table, they have, you know, people catty corner, but they've been scrunched up with each other all right. the time and in line and everything else. Um, the officers, it's been documented in pieces from all over the country, basically ignored the mask rule or were the ones that were bringing it in and were infecting people. And you're inside and you're helpless, right? There's a lot of pieces that people, like the one you just read, am I going to die in here? Like I was sentenced to X number of years, but I wasn't sentenced to death. And people were very, very worried that they were gonna die. It's, it's, a, tra it's a tragedy. It's, un it's unbelievable that there's no mandate to wear masks, there's no mandate to be vaccinated, and yet, these, you know, people are living in such close quarters and, uh, and, and control their movement. Kathy, the work that you're doing and have been doing, you know, has been pretty remarkable. I remember when you started the program, you know, Exchange for Change. I remember us talking about it and where it's gone, it's actually made such a difference in so many people's lives. The question is, how has it changed you at all? How has it affected you? Just your... I know that you know your past is that you're a writer, you were a journalist, as you said. You've also published a number of books on your own. I remember when we did an event for your book called Madam Dread, right? Uh, that was fantastic. So how has it changed you these many years? That's such, a, such an interesting question, Mitchell. You know, when I look back over my career, I'm just, I still feel like I'm this sort of normal white woman who grew up in the Midwest and, you know, just, I studied botany. That was my, my career. I was into plants and being outdoors and through, through a series of choices ended up in Haiti and really felt like that's where I grew up, right? Because I was exposed to so much that I didn't know. But then now I think actually, maybe I really grew up in prison, right? Where it's, it's like, I've, I've had another, their education. And I'm embarrassed to say that growing up, I never thought about prisons. I didn't think about 
people who were incarcerated. I thought if you committed a crime and you were sentenced, you probably deserved to be locked away. And I, you know, I'd like to undo my past a little bit and be, be more educated. Um, but anyway, here I am, you know, many, many decades later, just figuring this out. Uh, so it's increased my sense of humanity, I think. Um, the vast majority of students, not all, but the vast majority of students I would have over to my house for dinner to have a conversation. I'd let my students babysit if I had little kids again or grandkids. Um, I have fascinating conversations. I have a lot of respect and trust. I also recognize that there are a lot of victims out in the world as a result of crimes that our students have committed. And I don't want to in any way diminish the pain and the hurt that those victims have suffered. I also recognize that everyone deserves a second chance. And what I've seen of the men that I know, and it's mostly men, although we're now back in the women's prison, is that people have taken time to figure out what brought them to prison in the first place and deserve a second chance to come out and live their lives to the fullest. And while the vast majority of incarcerated will come out, the vast majority of our students, about half I would say, have life sentences. And Florida, does no, Florida no longer has a parole system. So people with life sentences will not get that second chance. So the absolute best thing that we can do, and this is where I think I've grown, is to meet people where they are, accept the humanity of where they are, and then do whatever you can to make their lives as good as they can be. And in this case, for those who will end up in prison, let's try and afford them all the human rights and all of the respect and decency that we would afford anybody else that we would meet in our lives. How do these prisoners... How do they get a chance to be in your program? How are they selected? So our program is open to anybody. Uh, we actually, well, I shouldn't say that. It's open to anybody who has a GED, right? One of the things that happened in the state of Florida is that we went through huge budget cuts. And so the Department of Corrections took away almost every other program except the ones that are mandated by the state. So the GED is mandated that they have to offer that. So what we wanted to do as an organization was offer something that the state wasn't. So we started these courses for people who already had their GEDs and all they have to do is sign up. Um, one of the things that we are most proud of is the diversity of our facilitators. And we call them facilitators rather than teachers because we think we're just actually facilitating knowledge that is already there that needs to be coaxed out a little bit. Um, so we started at Dade Correctional Institution with one class of 17 students. And by the time the pandemic shut us down, we were had teaching 33 classes in South Florida, um, poetry, fiction, nonfiction, um, debate, writing on trauma, writing in Spanish, personal essay, playwriting, songwriting, um, debate, Shakespeare, uh, memoir right, uh, speculative fiction. We were trying always to accommodate the world inside whose interests are as diverse as any university and find people who could go in and um, teach these courses for the demand that we were seeing inside. 
So Disorder Press is the press that has published this. They are based in New Orleans, I believe, right? It's so it's a sibling, it's a brother and sister. Um, the sister is based in New Orleans. The brother is in, I think he's in North Carolina right now. Um, young, dynamic, uh, they came up with Disorder Press because that's kind of how they wanted to shake up the world of publishing. And they publish one book a year. And it was a mutual friend who introduced them to us. And as soon as we met them, it was uh, the synergy was there. They've been a partner with us every step of the way. Um, it's been really great to work with them because they understood what it was that we were looking for. They're really sharp editors. So they helped with the selection of the pieces and the proofreading and the editing. Uh, they had a woman on their team uh, out in, in San Francisco in the Bay Area who was the designer of the book who also really got what we were trying to do. And it's been really a seamless process uh, to be able to put this all together and get the book out in less than a year has been an, a, just an amazing venture. It's a beautifully done book. There's artwork in it as well, as much as other, as well as other stuff. I thought I would read uh, a last poem from the book. It's called Who Cares by Angela Willingham, uh, who's also from Florida. And Angela writes, a woman hides behind her mask. She lifts her head high. Collections of scars tell stories. The remnants of her demons, her daily battle. Weakness or strength, both are excruciating. You're a number bound to years, lost in the stack of paperwork. Look the part of a convict. Try to look normal. So many years inside have erased that look they call normal. At least we can legally wear a mask now. At least I can hide from myself now. No, never. I mean, these are voices that... Um, are haunting and are so important to be heard. And I can only imagine what this does for the, for the students, for the people presenting these. I mean, they must feel such a sense of pride. And I bet the recidivism rate for people who are writers in prison are much less, is much less than the general population. Am I right about that? Absolutely. You know, I have to tell you just ironically, um, Mitchell, last night, just as I was leaving the office, we got a call and I was really tired and I just, I was, I was not going to answer it anyway. I answered it. It was from someone from a correctional institution. Um, and it turns out it was a writer um, in this book in Wisconsin who was getting out today. And he wanted to make sure that um, he had just gotten a letter from us that said, because one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to get people to read their own pieces. If they're incarcerated, can they do it? And if not, if someone on the outside is reading their piece, how would they like their piece represented? He had just gotten our letter and he said, I'm so excited because I will be able to come out and read my piece for you. And this is his first time ever being published. And you could just hear, well, the excitement one of him getting out, but the pride to be included in this book. And we heard it time and time again is what it meant. I mean, we have women in Alaska, in prison in Alaska, when have you ever thought about what it would be like to be a woman incarcerated in Alaska? We have the transgender voice. We have voices from the Muslim community. We have a, a sex offender from California who talks about what it's like to be the most ostracized person in prison, right? So we really tried to represent those voices and give those writers a sense of pride 
in the work that they've done and to be able to bring it out to the rest of the world. Kathy, how can people uh, get involved with Exchange uh, for Change? What can they do if they want to contribute or if they want to volunteer? Or maybe even talk to you about starting their own Exchange for Change in their own state or wherever they live. So um, the easiest way to get in touch with us is just to go on our website, which is exchangeforchange.org with hyphens in between. Um, and we have a, uh, what you call it, one of those little links, right, that can tell you if you'd like to get involved. So you could volunteer for us in the office. We've had amazing volunteers this summer. We've had um, people whose lives I think have, they've changed their career path from working with the incarcerated population. We're always looking for instructors um, and we are now on an online platform. So if people don't wanna go into the prison, we have ways of getting you up online so that you could work with incarcerated people all over the state. One thing I'd be really remiss in not saying is that uh, one of the courses that is most unique to what we do is an exchange class. So um, Mitchell, let's say you're teaching um, creative writing at the University of Miami. So your students and my students read the same thing then they take a pseudonym to protect their identity. They exchange papers on their response to whatever it was. And then all semester long, they have this back and forth dialogue between two writers in two academic settings. So we are working with um, programs, academic institutions, universities, and colleges outside the state. But those colleges could also be working with the incarcerated population in their own state. And we are not at all proprietary about how we set this up. We want these programs to be all over the country. We're happy to help and share our knowledge in what we did to set this up. So there's lots of ways you can get involved and you can always give us money because unfortunately we lost some of our funding during COVID. And we, I mean, I don't mind advocating. We do change lives, we make a difference and your support for helping us do that is always greatly appreciated. And I can attest to the passion of Kathy Claridge. Kathy, thank you so much for being a guest. And uh, that's Exchange for Change. You can uh, find them on the internet and feel free to support them. The book is called Hear Us with a marvelous introduction by the great Edwidge Dantecott. Thank you for all the great work that you do. And thank you for, uh, for being a guest today. It's wonderful to see you again. Thanks so much for, for having me on, Mitchell. I really appreciate it.